daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Hello and welcome to World Today. I'm Ding Han in Beijing. Coming up, President Xi Jinping is on a trip to South Africa to attend a BRICS summit as well as paying a state visit. We will also take a look at a recent trilateral summit involving the leaders of the United States, Japan, and South Korea. Netherlands and Denmark have confirmed plans to provide Ukraine with F-16 fighter jets. And Singapore's prime minister says succession plan is "quote unquote" back on track. So, if you want to listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, download our podcast by searching "World Today." Chinese President Xi Jinping has embarked on a four-day trip to South Africa to attend a BRICS summit and pay a state visit to the country. China is a core member of the BRICS, which also includes Brazil, Russia, India, and South Africa. The meeting in Johannesburg this week will be the first summit to be held in person since the year 2019. A total of 69 countries have been invited to the event, including all African states. In the meantime, President Xi Jinping will also co-chair a China-Africa Leaders Dialogue with his South African counterpart Cyril Ramaphosa. So, joining us now on the line is Dr. Li Peimei, Assistant Professor of Political Science with the International Islamic University, Malaysia. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Ding. Okay. okay. So. Doctor Lee,、uh, to China, what do you think will be at stake during the BRICS summit to be held、uh, this week? For example, a lot has been reported in the media regarding、uh, BRICS membership expansion, and according to South Africa diplomats, around twenty countries have formally applied to join.、Uh, what? How? How would you make of the stance of China on this issue? I think this BRICS summit is very important, actually, for China to show their deep commitment to strengthening BRICS and enhancing cooperation with its members. So, given that, um, um, given the importance of BRICS, I think it makes a lot of sense for developing countries wanting to be part of BRICS,、um, especially in this increasingly volatile external environment. So,、uh, as you have mentioned, that there are. Twenty countries, or even more, that formally applied to join BRICS, but there are actually more than that, like more than forty countries that have informally expressed their desire to join. So clearly, we see that it's a huge interest in BRICS.、Um, what I see is、uh, China, of course, would be very welcoming、uh, of such、um, interest. Uh, for this global south to join BRICS, because if you look at the U.S.,、um, they are basically creating its own group of partners and allies, and this situation actually causes other countries to feel very insecure. So, as an alternative, these countries would want to actually seek to join multilateral platforms that are viewed as positive and also inclusive and welcoming. So. For China's perspective,、uh, definitely they would welcome and support participation of any countries that want to work together to promote peace and development. And because I, I believe I think China views the world differently from the U.S.、Uh, China believes that prosperity and peace are only possible if all countries work together.、Mm. So, yeah. Okay. okay, so, so、um, in, particular, in particular, we understand, understand there is going to be a heavy be a presence of African countries during the BRICS summits this week. So, to Africa, what do you think is the relevance of the BRICS in the world today? Okay, for for Africa, I think、uh, BRICS is very important for them. There are a lot of enthusiasm coming from the African countries, and they are watching closely. And are very hopeful that they could be offered an opportunity to join the BRICS during the summit,、um, because the reason for African countries to actually want to be part of、uh, BRICS is that、um, they face、uh, one major issue, which is the lack of development. So there are many mega projects that require huge financing, which the African governments are simply not able to provide. So 
BRICS could actually open up more opportunities for these African countries to get investments. Particularly, um, BRICS have this new development bank uh, that offer um, finance um, to infrastructure projects. So, like many of the African countries, they do have huge and important resources, but they often lack the capital, knowledge and expertise to help them get the most out of their resources. So not only they are able to access to the funds provided by the new development bank, but they are also able to receive technical assistance from more advanced BRICS members if they were part of the uh, uh, BRICS. But as mentioned by you, Tinghung, earlier, um, there are a lot of countries who have formally submitted the application to join BRICS, but I expect not many applications will be approved. Uh, one of the hurdles is that Brazil is not so keen to actually expand the membership. And therefore, um, if African countries wanted to join um, BRICS, um, they have to, you know, they have to get um, through the consensus of all the existing BRICS members. Mm. Now, some people say this um, summit of BRICS is ultimately a platform for China to bolster its um, influence in the global south at a time when China is facing is faced with increasing isolation by the United States and the European countries. Um, is this how you see it? Well, we can also see in another way. I think for me, BRICS Summit is indeed a good platform for China to showcase to the world that the moment of Global South has finally arrived. If you look at the past, Global South was basically detected by the West. The West has been setting rules and laws for the majority countries of the world to follow. So this, this what we call liberal international order has not been very fair to developing countries. Um, just you know, look at what happened to Iraq and Afghanistan in the, in the 2000s. Um, they were actually um, being um, invaded, right? Uh, just because of their political system, which was very different from the West, their government were actually being toppled. So if you ask me, I will look at it as the perfect moment uh, for developing countries to find their voices and articulate their thoughts freely through BRICS. So I think through BRICS summits, China can actually develop, uh, deliver an important message to the global south that we do have agency and we can speak up against any attempt to disrupt global, global peace. So more importantly, the global south are going to do that through peaceful and multilateral means. So I do really hope that President Xi Jinping could highlight during the BRICS summit how it has become an important mission of the global south to actually create a more democratic and multicultural international relations and pushing forward a BRICS model of inclusiveness. Hmm. Now, with regard to President Xi Jinping's uh, stay visit to South Africa itself, I mean, certainly there is a sound bilateral relationship here. Uh, because the two countries are each other's um, comprehensive strategic partnership. There has been, you know, an upgrade of this um, notion from uh, partner to strategic partner to comprehensive strategic partner over the years. And in the meantime, China has been uh, South Africa's biggest trading partner for more than a decade. Chinese uh, investors are doing a lot to help with the industrial upgrade in South Africa. So, in retrospect, what do you think is the key spirit of this uh, relationship? And um, at this point, what do you think are the areas where the two countries could deepen their cooperation? I think one important key spirit of this relationship is uh, mutual respect. Uh, I think Pres uh, President Rwandan Paul Kagame once said that China's and Africa's cooperation is basically based on mutual respect and benefit. So in other words, uh, we can see that China has always treated African countries as equal partners. And therefore, China's ways of engaging and approaching countries is totally different from the West. So China is known to respect other culture and sovereignty. So because of this, um, I think 
this is why um, there are less resistance to China's economic initiative and investment uh, in worldwide. And also, I think another important uh, difference between how China engages with the world is that the offer, the loans that they offer, are often not with are not with political strings attached, unlike loans offered by the Western-led institutions such as IMF. And based on this basis, I think it makes countries actually be, feel more comfortable to deal with China. And in terms of um, the areas where the two sides could deepen corporations or they could uh, force the new corporation, uh, I think one one of the good things that China did was ahead of the summit in 10 August, the, um, China and South Africa already signed a deal to import products worth more than $2 billion from South Africa. So this agreement basically shows us that there are actually room for further expansion of trade and also potential investments from China to South Africa. And another area where I think South Africa uh, might need the assistance of China, uh, which is in um, the power supply. So South Africa has often uh, faced power cuts issue, which impacted many sectors, including its agricultural sector. So disruption in energy supply does have a huge impact on the harvest and by extension, the incomes of the farmer. Therefore, I think this is an area where China can actually come in to offer their assistance. Mm. So, by the way, in terms of the broader relationship between China and Africa, um, how would you look at the timing of this uh, China-Africa leaders dialogue? As a matter of fact, there is already a pretty mature mechanism surrounding the meeting of the Forum on China-Africa Cooperation. It was, um, uh, you know, it was held uh, every every time for every three years, once for every three years. So with that in mind, what can we expect regarding this uh, leaders dialogue? Very briefly. Well, I think this forum is very timely uh, in the sense that uh, we're seeing Africa are turning uh, away from the United States. So this forum is going to be about um, China giving reassurance to African countries that China will continue to be uh, committed in their relationship with Africa. So if you look at the trade statistic, um, in 2022, China trade with Africa actually reached uh, $282 billion US dollar, which has increased more than 10% compared to last year. But in comparison, if you look at the overall US trade with Africa, it's much lesser. In 2021, uh, U.S. export to Africa was only $26.7 billion, and import from Africa was only uh, $37.6 billion. So if we look at the statistics, it could show that the trade between the U.S. and Africa is actually gradually decreasing over the years. So there is a growing gap for China to fill in terms of um, trade. Um, so... What, what we could expect from this leaders' dialogue is that um, I think one of the main major issues that they would discuss is about creating employment opportunities in Africa because the post-pandemic recovery is less impressive for uh, Africa, especially for low-income African countries. If you look at their employment rate, they have yet to return to pre-pandemic levels. So I think practical solutions to creating jobs and improving living conditions of the African people would be expected. And of course, uh, we will also expect um, them to discuss about African debt sustainability. Um, if with the slowing economy, some African countries may not be able to repay the debts. So practical solutions need to be put in place. Mm. Yeah. Thank you very much. That was Dr. Li Pei Mei, Assistant Professor of Political Science with the International Islamic University, Malaysia. Thank you very much for joining us. You're listening to World Today. Stay tuned. China's foreign ministry has warned against turning the Asia-Pacific region into a wrestling ground for geopolitical competition adding no country should seek its own security at the expense of other countries' security interests and regional peace and stability. 
This comment was made in response to a summit between the leaders of the U.S., Japan, and South Korea near Washington D.C. Joe Biden, Yong Su Yeo, and Fumio Kishida have touted a new era of trilateral partnership at the Friday event at the Camp David presidential retreat. The leaders have announced a raft of initiatives, which they say would institutionalize their relations, including annual military exercises, boosting communication mechanisms, and setting up a supply chain early warning system. A joint statement issued after the meeting has criticized China over South China Sea as well as North Korea's nuclear program. So joining us now on the line is Professor Zhu Feng, Dean of the School of International Studies with Nanjing University. Welcome back. Thank you. So some Biden administration officials, like U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, they claim that this summit was not aimed against anyone. Rather, they say it was.、Um, For a vision of the Indo-Pacific that is free, open, secure, and prosperous,、uh, do you think this um, claim, um, you know, is convincing to you? And by the way, regarding this readout from the joint statement issued after the meeting, do you think what China is doing in the South China Sea, for example, has anything to do with、um, the U.S., South Korea, and Japan? Okay,、uh, Jan. I think it's a good question. First of all, I totally disagree uh, with uh, uh, Jack Stolz's claim. I think his claim is、uh, a typical one of、uh, hypocrisy、uh, with regard to Americans'、uh, regional security uh, strategy, very、uh, vividly reflected from the, uh, just the concluded, you know, the Camp David, you know, trilateral summit meeting. We also uh, just uh, uh, get a lot of uh, 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 new push from the、uh, uh, Camp David、uh, trilateral summit meeting. First of all, we see it's some sort of a new、uh, solidarity of the、uh, trilateral alliance、uh, system in East Asia. We see it's a very deliberate, you know, the enlargement U.S. laid、mm-hmm. from some sort of a bilateral alliance over to. Many uh, trilateral, many uh, uh, multiple, multiple and、uh, trilateral alliances. Secondly, I would see、uh, based on some sort of their joint, you know, press uh, uh, talks and some sort of uh, 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 camps of David, you know,、uh, spirit and what's、uh, the doctrine is very, very、uh, profoundly and also extraordinarily. Um, demonstrate some sort of their China target. It's very clear cut.、Mm. Why they just uh, uh, make some sort of enlargement of alliances in、uh, focused on the China's? I think it's、uh, some sort of the production of the、uh, new Cold War, you know, the mentality. The、mm. U.S. now is launched、uh, overwhelming strategic competition campaigns vis-a-vis China.、Mm. So U.S. Just trying to, you know,、uh, pull more countries in the region into the American side and keep the China, you know, uh, uh, corner. So this、uh, trilateral summit meeting is a new, you know, vivid case of Americans China-centered, you know, new Cold War push. It's、uh, not just uh, uh, came from、uh, Americans' hegemonic interest, but also from Americans. Very uh, uh, narrative and private, you know,、uh, strategic calculation. But the problem is, if we're just looking back the past three decades of、uh, regional economic、uh, prosperity and、uh, peaceful stability in East Asia, what kind of a leading driving force behind that is, uh, uh, we say, uh, enlarged, you know,、uh, regionalization? Yes. Mm. Uh, termination of、uh, fractal, you know, the confrontation. But now, what it just、like、got me very concerned is Americans' methodology is just trying to completely go against the past historical、uh, dominance、mm. and the, leaving the region back to the Americans' Cold War embracement. Okay, so Professor Zhu,、um, in your understanding, is there? Do you think there is really such a thing as 
a new era of trilateral partnership between Washington, Seoul, and Tokyo. Given the fact that, for example, if we check out the public opinion in South Korea, for example, people in South Korea are actually, you know, deeply divided about. This kind of、um, reconciliation, deeper integration, and collaboration with、um, with Japan. Yes, I think、uh, you made the point. On the one hand, we see、uh, President Yoon is completely just、uh, through the South Korean into the American embracement, and also just very, very surprisingly、uh, trying to, you know, normalize the let's say make the approach with、uh, Japan. But the problem is, as you mentioned, very sharp. Irony is、uh, most of the Korean people feel very, very angry because the Japan's government is still very conservative. Their views of the historical, you know, the crime in the invasion of the South Korean, yeah, has been very ambiguous and even let's say some sort of uh, Japan uh, mentality uh, dominated. So then,、uh, Korean people also would like to uh, have a、uh, uh, legal compensation from forced labor force during、uh, the Japan's colonization of the Korea in Second World War. But the problem is, the Tokyo government continue to reject. But the Yoon's government just trying to have、uh, some sort of、uh, compromise and、uh, shifting some sort of such a compensation claim. Of the Japan government, instead they just trying to use some sort of NGOs compensation in where they fitting some sort of a, such a, a,、mm. a path. Yeah. But the problem is, as I mean, as you just mentioned, there is a very very、uh, sharp distinction between Korean government's pro-Japan attitude and Korean people's lingering, you know, the hesitance in. Just the house of refabricating some sort of like, intimate relations with、uh, Japan before some sort of historical、uh, disputes could be completely clarified.、Mm. So then that's why the the Yun administration's some sort of a new policy of seeking not a detente but some sort of、uh, such a very intimate relations between Seoul and Tokyo is still、uh, very questionable. Okay, so Professor Zhu, we still have about two minutes for our、uh, conversation. So, I mean, from a bigger picture, on one hand, we have seen this trilateral meeting held at Camp David, but on the other hand, over the course of this week, we are going to see this BRICS meeting to be held in Johannesburg, South Africa. So, Professor, do you see any any fundamental, you know, difference between these two meetings? Of course, the difference is very remarkable. I think, from a Chinese perspective, we just really want to see some sort of international collaboration, cooperation, proceeding without any hesitance. On the other hand, some sort of Chinese views and the Chinese stance now is very dramatically, you know,、uh, different from Americans' one. The U.S. just still very narrowly and very privately. Just stand on the Americans, some sort of hegemonic, you know, uh, uh, preference, some sort of、uh, such a centered、uh, methodology. Just、uh, trying to create some sort of a new strategy, geostrategic fracture, and even divide in East Asia. But actually, in the today's world, we also see a lot of global issues now is really、uh, brush the、uh, international community. Without some sort of the full, you know, collaboration, cooperation, I don't think the world community could be very, very、uh, capable of overthrowing all such a, you know, uh, uh, challenges.、Mm. That's why I see the China's view is representing the future. Mm. Thank you. As always, that was Professor Zhu Feng, Dean of the School of International Studies with Nanjing University. You're listening to World Today. We'll be back after a short break. You're listening to World Today. I'm Ding Hen in Beijing. 
The cultural and tourism market in China has been surging this summer with packed tourist attractions and record high box offices. The China Tourism Academy has predicted that this ongoing summer will see the busiest travel market in some five years, with an estimated 1.8 billion domestic trips from June to August. This is projected to generate 1.2 trillion yuan or 160 billion U.S. dollars in domestic tourism revenue. Meanwhile, the summer box office has been a resounding success, hitting a record high of more than 2 billion U.S. dollars in ticket sales. So, why are the cultural and tourism sector in China booming, and what does that mean for the economy as a whole? My colleague Zhao Yang spoke with Dr. Chu Qiang, research fellow of global issues with Beijing Foreign Studies University. So, first of all, Dr. Chu, from the packed tourist attractions to the movie frenzy, the culture and tourism market in China is buzzing this summer. So, what are the main factors behind this? I think the most important reason is the、uh, reopening of the Chinese economy.、Um, since、uh, we have already left behind. The、uh, pandemic and the whole、uh, economy is already back online, and it shows that Chinese economy is vibrant, resilient, and people really want to retain their lifestyles before. So people just go back to、uh, the movie theater, go back to the restaurant.、Uh, the whole tourism market is not is really on fire. It's not just a recovering; it's actually overheating. People are everywhere,、mm-hmm. um, so you're going to see very good numbers in the uh, uh, social retail numbers,、uh, and also in the tourism numbers, the movie numbers, and it's a really good news for the domestic economy. And the country's summer box office earnings have already hit a record high. So, what has led to such a resounding success of the Chinese films in the domestic market? Well, I think the most important reason is that、um, Chinese. Own culture, the local culture, has、um, again、uh, just、uh, regained people's attention. Just people want to really find out what's the Chinese story, what's the Chinese uh, spirit, uh, what is、um, our story. You know,、um, people used to be very attracted to the Hollywood、uh, foreign stars because people really want to open their eyes to, for the international vision. But now people want to. Refine themselves.、Uh, for example, recently we have uh, many, um, you know, the epic movies about the ancient Chinese mythology,、mm. and people really want to find out. Okay, what my ancestors looking at,、mm. uh, looking like, and、um, what's going on in Chinese、uh, Marvel world, quote unquote. So this, and people really want some happiness, and then it shows that、uh, we have a frenzy in the Chinese movie market. And service consumption, for example, tourism has significantly rebounded, as you mentioned, and this is、uh, providing significant support for the expansion of the consumption. From January to July,、uh, service retail sales increased by over twenty percent, and this growth rate actually surpassed that of the、uh, goods retail sales. So, what are the implications of the recovery in service consumption, particularly in the tourism sector, for the overall economy? I think the、uh, pandemic really did something to people's spiritual understanding about the world.、Um, it shows people that、uh, more than the money, more than what we used to be, you know, running after every day. More important is family, is health,、um, is the enjoyment of、uh, being a human, living a life. So after the pandemic, a lot of people. You know, they they think it through.、Uh, they understand that maybe I should spend more time with my family, with my kid, with my parents. I should go to the nature,、uh, get close to、um, you know the historic tourism place to see our culture. So,、uh, humanism has become a very important、uh, you know signal of this new round、uh, of、uh, social activities. A lot of economic activities are happening around that.、Mm-hmm. That's why you see in Forbidden City. In、the Great War, in the、uh, bond of the Shanghai,、uh, people mountain, people sea. So I think this is a good signal because people repaid their attention to the culture, to the history, rather than seeking、uh, the material enjoyment alone. 
Mm. And for the economy as a whole, it continued to show the growth and recovery in July. However, the growth rate has slowed down. So, what factors do you think have contributed to it? And are there any figures and analysis suggesting that the momentum is still stable? Well, in China, if you take a look at the、uh, breaking down numbers,、uh, you'll find out as we just discussed. Actually,、uh, from、uh, from the、uh, the January to July. Uh, consumption is、uh, is overheating for sure,、mm. uh, but what number is slowing down is export and import. Why is that? But you have to understand, China as the number one factory of the whole world, Chinese number of export and import do not only reflecting on Chinese situation, but more reflecting on the whole world economic sentiment, because China are creating are building things for the whole world demand. And if I take a wider look at the numbers in Germany, in France, in Vietnam, in Indonesia,、uh, in Japan, Korea, and、uh, in England, you will find out every country's number are slowing down because strong dollar created by Federal Reserve's, you know, dramatic、uh, interest rate hike are killing the demand. Just think about it. This is just simple truth.、Mm-hmm. When you have more than five percent of the interest rate. In Canada, maybe six percent, and UK probably seven percent of the interest rate. Would you buy new houses by borrowing money? Would you buy new cars? And without that, would you buy the decorations? Would you buy the little things used at home? And would you dare to have another baby because of high cost? No. So it's a strong dollar killed all, maybe most of the uh, uh, demand in the world and slowed down the whole world economy. Plus, we still have the. Hovering around、uh, inflation, so that can be a very serious problem of the whole world. China, as a vital part of the world economy, will also be affected by that. So、mm-hmm. I think this is the most important reason、uh, to see the slowing down in the economy in July. But not only China; I mean, the whole world is like that. I think we're going to overcome this for sure. Especially, I think,、um, as by the end of this year or early next year, when the inflation. Uh, it's getting、uh, mitigated, and when the interest rate can finally drop to the normal situation, and I think that time the whole world economy will get rebalanced, and we will regain the momentum. Of economic growth, and in the first half of this year, the foreign direct investment in China continued to increase with a year-on-year growth rate of twelve point four percent. So, what factors for that, and how will the growth in the FDI impact China's overall economy? Do you think FDI is always welcomed and a very important part in Chinese economy? I think this is also a very simple truth. Take a look at the Chinese trade、uh, numbers, even though.、Uh, We're slowing down like all the other countries in the world, but China still have a huge surplus. So, which means our sheer profit is still here. So, if you are a foreign investor, would you invest in a country with deficit,、uh, losing money, or you would like to invest in a country still can earn money,、uh, comparing to the current backdrop of the whole world? I think the answer can be very simple. And also, plus China's uh, G, uh, China's. Uh, GDP is still growing、uh, in from the June、uh, from the January to June and July.、Uh, our GDP grow at 5.5 percent. This is still one of the highest in the whole world.、Mm-hmm. And、uh, also Chinese、uh, social financing still expanding,、uh, even though comparing to 10 years ago is slowing down. But still comparing to our counterparts in the whole world currently, I think China is still making progress. And according to the forecast of the IMF and the World Bank. China can achieve、uh, 5.5, around 5.5 percent of the growth, one of the highest in the whole world. So I think if you are a entrepreneur、uh, investor, I think this is not quite a difficult answer to to get. Plus, China have a very stable、uh, inflation situation, so your profit would not be eating away by high inflation. So sometimes you can earn. Ten percent of interest,、uh, you can earn ten percent、uh, of the profit, but、uh, the inflation eat away six percent or seven percent, left you with only four or three percent of the net income. I think you can make the simple math by yourself, right? That was Doctor Chu Chang talking to my colleague Zhao Yang. You are listening to World Today. Stay tuned. Hello, my name is Alessandro Golombievski Teixeira. I'm a professor of public policy and management at Tsinghua University in Beijing. 
I am a great listener of the world today. In my opinion, the world today is one of the best China radio programs. In the world today, we can get the best news and analysis in what is happening now in the world. So please come to join us. You are listening to World Today. I'm Ding Han in Beijing. The Netherlands and Denmark have confirmed plans to provide Ukraine with more than 40 F-16 fighter jets. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky made the announcement after visiting both countries. The transfers of the American-made fighter jets gained approval from Washington on Friday last week. This will mark the first time that Western countries will provide NATO-grade aircraft to Kiev. Slovakia and Poland have previously given Ukraine their fleets of the Soviet-era jets. So, joining us now on the line is Dr. Alexei Muraviev, associate professor of national security and strategic studies with Curtin University. Thank you very much for joining us. Good evening. So, Kiev has long pleaded F-16. That's for sure. However, the transfers we're talking about right now will likely involve a lengthy、um, pilot training process. Which means they will probably not be able to arrive in time to help with the Ukrainians with their ongoing summer counteroffensive. Also, these F-16s are actually the jets being retired by the Netherlands and Denmark. So, with that in mind, how would you how would you、um, evaluate the actual realistic meaning of these transfers to Ukraine? Well, it's certainly、uh, going to be、uh, a significant contribution to, to Ukraine's warfighting capability. But if we if we're going to assume that that somehow will be a game changer, that certainly won't be the the case you, for a number of reasons. First of all,、uh, the number of the aircraft supplied. If Ukraine will indeed get about forty aircraft, it would be not near enough to. Challenge、uh, Russia's air superiority because to do that Ukraine needs to receive、uh, something in the range of between 200 and 400 aircraft, which clearly、uh, the Western countries、uh, are unable and perhaps unwilling to supply because、uh, it would create all sorts of problems. And 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 certainly even supplying a, a, a far less number of.、Uh, Of of、uh, of combat aircraft would also create issues concerning who is going to fly it,、um, who is going to maintain it. Because、uh, for one flying hour of F F sixteen, it needs to be serviced for about sixteen hours on on the ground, and you need to have highly qualified personnel to do that. You need to have appropriate infrastructure, and the list goes on.、Mm. Uh, the second、uh, the second issue that needs to be、uh, taken into account. Is、uh, the the models that Ukraine is likely to receive from um, uh, from these two European countries are likely to be the latest variants of F-16s because um, uh, 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 they have received、uh, those aircraft back in、uh, in the 70s and the 80s. So we're talking about early generation variants、mm-hmm. of F-16s that went through some some sort of modernization, but again we're talking about airframes. With an age of say 40 or, or more years, so they're very close to retirement age. They may have been taken out of active service, or very close to it. So, in terms of real combat value, even those、um, air- aircraft would not be a massive、uh, challenge for for the Russians, because Russian air- aircraft were actually designed to confront F-16s,、uh, F-18s, and other. U.S. or European variants, not the aircraft that Ukraine Air Force was operating up until now.、Hmm. So early this year, U.S. President Joe Biden once ruled out sending the possibility of sending F-16 to Kiev. So, with that in mind, why do you think Washington has given a green light to this、uh, to these transfers、uh, this time around? Look, I mean, we need to remember that when the war started. Uh, uh, the United States, as well as the European allies, were very categorical about equipment that they are not going to supply to Ukraine. It all started with, for example, Germany providing Ukraine with helmets、yeah. and and field hospitals and and、um, a portable crematoriums, etc. And gradually it escalated into leopard things, into 
um, uh, armored uh, fighting vehicles, their defense systems. Same, same went for the United States. It all started with javelin systems. They all said that it will be all about giving Ukraine limited-scale defensive weapons and gradually escalated into far more sophisticated systems. Well, first of all, that's the nature of the war. When the, no, uh, when the war um, uh, un- unleashes, uh, you cannot really control it. It consumes more and more on a daily basis. Secondly, obviously, it's a result of the fact that no decisive uh, advancement was, was made uh, over, um, over 15 or 16 months of the, of the campaign. The Ukrainians did not manage to uh, achieve any strategic uh, successes, and well, the Russians obviously uh, did not achieve any major strategic successes, even though they have captured more of the Ukrainian territory. Mm-hmm. And and now we're in a situation where NATO and the United States fears that uh, uh, it may not be able to achieve complete military victory. At the same time, uh, neither Washington nor Brussels uh, are prepared to engage in political dialogue thinking that that would be a form of appeasement to Vladimir Putin and, and, and Moscow. So what they want to ensure is Ukraine is not, is not going to be defeated by Russia militarily, or at least will not um, uh, be in a situation when Russia can uh, enter political negotiations from the position of strength. So it's a, it's a, it's a fuel in the war effort, not to the point that would... Uh, significantly antagonize Russia and uh, take the war to a dramatic escalation phase, but also to ensure that Ukraine will not lose this conflict uh, mm. uh, significantly and, 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 and Russia not win, uh, won't win this conflict or achieve clear wins in this conflict. Mm. So as a matter of fact, F-16 fighter jets um, are something that even a NATO member like Turkey still does not have uh, access to at this point. Uh, for ex- for example, White House officials moved forward with the transfer of F-16 jets to Turkey only after Ankara, um, uh, only after President um, Erdogan gave green light for NATO's um, for NATO bid uh, on the part of Sweden earlier uh, this year. So. Does that mean Ukraine is actually being treated by the West in a way that is even more preferential than their treatment of certain members, certain existing members within NATO? Look, I mean, Ukraine has now received more military aid that provided by the United States than any other foreign country since the end of at least the Cold War, if not of the Second World War. And certainly it receives more uh, preferences that... Uh, 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 more more traditional um, uh, U.S. partners, including those with whom the United States have allied relations, um, and, um, and 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 certainly that that in itself creates a bit of a a bit of a dilemma because Ukraine doesn't have a special status. It I mean it, it, in in terms of it doesn't have uh, agreements with the United States or with NATO concerning allied obligations or any. Uh, mutually um, uh, obliged uh, uh, treaties, and yet it, it, it receives an, an unprecedented amount of economic aid, military aid. It's now entirely dependent on, on, on the West uh, military assistance and economic assistance, and by, by default that, that created a situation when uh, the U.S. administration, Biden administration, effectively drove itself in, in the corner because it cannot let Ukraine go, otherwise Ukraine will be defeated, and that would not be considered to be a defeat of, of Ukraine or President Vladimir Zelensky. It would be considered to be a U.S. defeat, and for, for Joe Biden to suffer a second strategic defeat if we factor in its withdrawal from Afghanistan in August 2021, I think it's too much to handle prior to next year's presidential election. So Ukraine has appeared to be um, uh, a, a very precious political um, a political um, uh, instrument of, of, of Biden administration, a very important ally, uh, perhaps not something that, that was uh, mm. created by design, but by, simply by necessity just happened to be in the right place, in the right time, in terms of containing Russia, 
and, and also by that campaign in China, because the war in Ukraine is not just about a confrontation between Russia and, and, uh, and Ukraine, or Russia and NATO, or Russia and the United States. It's also about um, uh, confrontation between the West and, and, the, and, and, and countries that the West describes to be autocratic powers. So you can even say that uh, the outcome of the war in Ukraine um, mm. is, 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 is effectively a precursor for a possible confrontation and power contest in the Indo-Pacific, whether it's about the future of Taiwan or South China Sea or other areas where uh, the United States may be on a collision course, but not with Russia this time, but with China. Mm. Thank you. We are running out of time for this discussion, but thank you very much. That was Dr. Alexei Muraviov, Associate Professor of National Security and Strategic Studies with Curtin University. You are listening to World Today. Stay with us. Singaporean Prime Minister Lee Hsien Loong says succession plans are back on track with the end of the COVID-19 pandemic. Lee made the announcement on Sunday as part of an annual prime ministerial message delivered to his entire nation, adding that leadership renewal is a crucial task in preparing for Singapore's future. Lee had previously hoped to step down before his uh, 70th birthday in February 2022. However, that has been disrupted by the COVID-19 pandemic. Deputy Prime Minister Lawrence Wong is set to take over to form the country's fourth-generation leadership. There is no clear timeline for the succession at this point. So joining us now on the line is Dr. Ling Tai Wei, um, a professor with Soka University in Japan. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, good evening. Okay, so first of all, for some of our listeners who might be a little unfamiliar with the Singaporean politics, can you explain how leadership transition works in Singapore and how that is related to the, uh, for example, to the elections in the country? Well, uh, the uh, leadership uh, succession in uh, Singapore is uh, very carefully and meticulously uh, planned. Uh, It is based on the... uh, uh, performance uh, of uh, politicians, uh, particularly uh, the uh, the current uh, ruling uh, party, where uh, they will look at the performance uh, of uh, the individual uh, as a member of parliament, uh, and also uh, s- uh, some of them would uh, go through the, uh, the ranks uh, of the uh, uh, ministerial uh, portfolios. Uh, they may uh, start off uh, with the Minister of State, and then goes on to a uh, full minister uh, as part of the cabinet. Uh, and all along the way, uh, their performances uh, would, would be uh, tracked. And also, uh, when uh, the, uh, their performance during the uh, <clears throat> scheduled uh, elections uh, will also be uh, monitored uh, as well as part of the performance. Uh, and also the way they handle, uh, for example, crises like COVID-19, etc., so all these are very much uh, based on a meritocratic uh, principle. Uh, Singapore uh, focuses and emphasizes very much on meritocracy. Uh, and therefore, uh, after all this uh, evaluation through uh, different portfolios, through the different ranks uh, and, and, uh, of uh, the uh, political system, mm-hmm. then uh, they may be considered by uh, the Prime Minister with his uh, colleagues uh, for uh, leadership succession. Mm. So, can you tell us more about Lawrence Wong, the current Deputy Prime Minister? There seems to be some concern that the fourth generation leader are not yet fully ready to take over the leadership. What is your take about this? And what kind of scenarios can you envision in this regard under which the handover will likely um, happen? Well, uh, he is, uh, Mr. Lawrence Wong is indeed a very experienced uh, uh, person, a uh, veteran, uh, politician, economist, uh, and also a former uh, public uh, servant. Uh, he has served uh, in many, many capacities uh, as a member of parliament uh, and also the chairperson uh, of the Monetary Authority of, uh, Singap- of uh, Singapore, uh, the uh, Deputy uh, Secretary General of the uh, ruling party, Minister of Finance, 
and uh, eventually a deputy prime minister, as uh, he is today since uh, last year. Uh, he has also worked in many uh, portfolios in the Ministry of Trade and Industry, Ministry of Finance, Ministry of Health, and was the principal private secretary to the current uh, prime minister, and also served uh, in the past as the chief executive officer of Energy Market Authority. So in this sense, uh, he has uh, multiple portfolios, uh, has and through his multiple portfolios, he has managed to uh, get uh, exposed uh, and in touch uh, with uh, many uh, sectors of uh, Singaporean society, uh, its business world, uh, and its uh, also its uh, political community. Uh, and therefore, uh, you know, in this sense, uh, he is uh, very much uh, qualified uh, through the years uh, and through his performances in uh, multiple portfolios. Uh, in, in this uh, leadership uh, succession uh, system. Mm. Now, Dr. Ling, currently there seems to be a few domestic challenges in Singaporean society, including a backlash against the foreign workers, rising costs and rising inequality, as well as this uh, general kind of um, shift away from the globalization or globalizing forces that once boosted Singapore's trade-reliant economy. So do you think these issues will have an impact on leadership handover in the foreseeable future? One minute. Well, uh, Singapore uh, does not uh, is unable to control certain uh, external uh, macroeconomic or macro-political forces or geopolitical forces, but it has always been uh, very agile and versatile in riding the waves uh, of challenges in the world. For example, it's always been a champion of uh, free trade, and therefore Singapore is at the center of many major uh, trade uh, deals. Uh, for example, the RCEP, Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, mm-hmm. uh, and also CPTPP. So uh, by uh, integrating itself uh, into many uh, free trade agreements, uh, it is able to uh, sort of buffer against the challenges uh, that has been brought up uh, by uh, the external uh, environment. At the same time, domestically, uh, it has a very uh, strong policy of leaving no one behind. Therefore, in terms of uh, social economic policies, it has uh, policies in place uh, to help uh, various uh, social economic classes uh, within Singapore, leaving no one behind. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this uh, could come in various forms, for example, like yeah. the subsidies for housing, for example, yeah. or uh, across the socioeconomic level. Mm, your point's well taken. That was Dr. Ling Tai Wei joining us from Soka University in Tokyo, Japan. That's all the time for this edition of World Today. I'm Ding Han in Beijing. Bye for now.